Hello and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of immigration law and policy. And I'm Steve Mirens. I'm Peter Edelman. Uh, we're joined today by Marilyn Sanford. Uh, welcome, welcome, Marilyn. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, so Marilyn is uh, one of the uh, the more prominent criminal defense lawyers uh, in Western Canada, or in uh, probably in Canada in general. But uh, we've uh, had the fortune to have Marilyn with us and has presented it many times at various conferences over the years. Uh, one of the reasons that we were having Marilyn here today, uh, aside from talking about uh, a very prominent case that she had recently uh, in the, the Nuttall decision, which we'll talk about later, which is the, uh, the Victoria uh, legislature bombing case or the, the case uh, of no legislature bombing, as, as it turns out. Uh, the um, the main issue that we're going to talk about today is searches at the border, in particular uh, searches of electronic devices at the border. And uh, Marilyn's done uh, some work on this and presented a paper, which we'll be posting to the uh, um, to the website. Um, okay, so in terms of uh, of searches at the border, uh, maybe I'll, I'll let you start by doing maybe a little bit of an introduction about how searches work. Are they different at the border? What's uh, what is the situation with searching, in particular, uh, our electronic devices at the border? It's something that's been in the news recently. Um, so what do we need to what do we need to understand? Yeah, um, I, I guess as a criminal lawyer, we always uh, searches are one of the big issues we deal with in criminal law and powers to search and. and uh, um, the person, your phone, your computer, your house, your car. Um, it's a complex area of law. And when it comes to the Canadian border, it, it, um, we have the Charter of Rights, which um, applies everywhere, including at the border. And the Charter of Rights sort of informs our, we have a right to be free from unreasonable search and seizure. And that is the usual grounds on which we, uh, as criminal lawyers, argue that there's been a violation of, of privacy rights in, in a search. When it comes to the border, the Customs Act uh, allows for searches, um, persons crossing the Canadian border without any, and we've all experienced this when we go to the border, uh, we can be referred for a search of our luggage, they can ask, they obviously search our person. Um, uh, I have a plate in my arm, so I always get the, um, the, the buzzers going off and I have a pat down search of my arm. Um, so the, the, the Customs Act allows for searches uh, based on crossing the border without any grounds um, in the sense of any, any particular reason to be suspicious or to think that you're bringing in contraband or violating a law in any way. So um, in legal terms, we talk about um, whether in law you need to have grounds to believe someone's violating the law or a lower threshold is whether you need to have suspicion, a reasonable suspicion that they might be bringing in contraband across the border or somehow have evidence on their persons or in their luggage or elsewhere. Uh, but the law um, in the Customs Act doesn't require any suspicion, reasonable suspicion. So it's sort of open season as far as searches of the person um, and a, a frisk search or a pat down search and searches of your luggage. If it comes to a more intrusive search, uh, then that's different. For example, if they want to do a strip search of a person or if they want to do a body cavity search, then the case law has said that, old case law from the 1980s, that they have to have a higher degree of uh, either reasonable suspicion or reasonable grounds to think you're breaking the law. 
And then in that sort of, so that's the, the broad context. And then when we look at electronic devices at the border, um, it's the law it tries to, has tried and attempted to apply search principles to the search of cell phones and computers that you may be bringing across the border. And the essential issue is, in law, is it just like searching your luggage or is it somehow different and more intrusive and more invasive of privacy? So that's that's the issue that the courts have grappled with. Okay, and so we've got, uh, um, just for the, the context in the immigration context, which we, we often face searches, um, there are two different sections that we're talking about. So one is under the Customs Act, where you've got the, the searches of the person that are set out and often where we'll see the justification for searching cell phones or, or laptops, for example, is that they'll be defined as goods by the customs uh, or the border services agents. And so they have an unlimited uh, capacity to, search, to inspect goods. So they're not actually searching your cell phone, they're inspecting goods. Although it looks a lot like a search, it feels a lot like a search, what they're doing is inspecting your goods. Um, the, on the, under the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, the requirements are much more restrictive in terms of searches. So in other words, for them to be able to engage in a search, they can engage in questioning and they can examine documents and there are certain other capacities on, on examination uh, upon entry. But in terms of the searches, there need to be reasonable grounds, uh, at least reasonable grounds to suspect, if not reasonable grounds to believe, um, under the, uh, the relevant sections of uh, of IRPA, or the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. Um, with respect to the custom searches, what we're, what we're seeing, and I guess this is what the, the discussion that we're uh, hoping to have today, is in terms of the electronic devices. The courts have been dealing with electronic devices over the past several years in terms of whether or not these should be treated differently. So whether searching my computer is the same as coming in and searching uh, my luggage, as you, as you said, or searching my pockets. Um, and so maybe we can start by talking about how these searches are, are treated by the courts outside the border context. And then we can uh, talk a little bit more about this in the border context, because it's definitely been a, uh, a major issue there. Sure. And that, and, um and outside of the border context, we, we've seen a really very dramatic um, uh, series of developments from our highest court in Canada, the Supreme Court of Canada. Um, in a fairly short period of time, um, the, the issues really only uh, began to be considered by them as to whether searches generally of electronic devices, putting aside the border context and just talking about uh, searches that are, happen in other contexts, whether generally a search of your cell phone or is the same as a search of your pocket, uh, is a search of your personal, of your computer, the same as a search of a piece of luggage or whatever, something your home. So uh, beginning um, a number of years ago, the Supreme Court of Canada in a series of cases it began to signal their um, appreciation that electronic devices are extraordinarily different in kind than um, a receptacle uh, an ordinary, a box, a drawer in your dresser in your home. Um, so there are four cases that, that have dealt with that. The first is a case um, called Morelli from 2010, um, 
where the court found that, that uh, they held that it's difficult to imagine a search more intrusive or invasive of privacy than a search of a personal computer. So that's uh, the first of the cases that signaled a departure uh, from treating a computer like a box of documents. So the court held in Vu that, in Morelli rather, that there, that any agents of the state attempting to undertake a search of a personal computer would be held to very high constitutional standards. The next case uh, was a case called Cole from 2012. And the issue there was whether it was a, a school board uh, with employee who had a, a, a computer that was issued by the employer uh, to, to him. And the employer gave consent to the police to search the computer. And in the course of that search, child pornography was located on the computer. Many uh, computer search cases are child pornography cases. And in that case, the school board gave consent. They owned the computer, they paid for it, they gave it to the employees. So under traditional um, law, that would be fine. There'd be, no, there'd be no objection that could be made because the owner of the computer had given consent. But the Supreme Court of Canada um, departed from traditional law in that case, Cole, and said, no, ownership is just one factor. We have to look at the high degree of of um, informational privacy that attaches to the data on the computer. This, in this case, the employer allowed the uh, school board employees to use their computers for personal reason purposes as well as for work purposes. Um, and they found the court found that the personal use of the computer um, meant that the data on it was, to use the court's words, meaningful, intimate, and organically connected to the biographical core of the employee who used the computer. So that again um, is a real departure from previous notions of search and ownership being the, 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 um, such an important factor and it's a recognition that computers are, are quite different from, from other uh, traditional receptacles or, or boxes of documents or paperwork or whatever. The third case was a case from 2013 called VU. And that case had to do with whether if you have a warrant to search someone's home, does that mean you can do forensic uh, searches of their computers as well within the home? Because ordinarily, if you have a search warrant and the police have a power to search your house, then they can um, look in every drawer and read every document in the house. And, and so, again, traditionally, the thought was a computer is just like um, the box of documents. But the Supreme Court of Canada and Boo said no. Um, it's because, again, of the, of the type of information and the high degree of privacy attaching to uh, computers. They said you, you need either for the warrant to specifically state that a computers can be searched and so the police would have to have grounds. Or um, if it doesn't say that, they can seize the computer, but they still have to go and get a warrant specific to the computer itself. And then the third case, a more recent case, uh, or sorry, the fourth case is a case from the Supreme Court of Canada called Fearon, and that case dealt with a very important issue as to whether uh, if the police have grounds to arrest you and search your person, which they do in law, when you're being arrested um, lawfully, the police, uh, both for the purpose of locating evidence and for their own protection, are allowed to search you. It's, it's called a search incident to your arrest. And so, and it happens almost invariably with every arrest. So the question was, um, if you're being lawfully arrested, can the police then take your phone and take it away and um, 
and search your phone and uh, forensically examine your cell phone if it's on your person. And that was an open uh, question until the decision of the Supreme Court of Canada in 2014, in this case from Ontario, called Fearon. And what they did with the case was quite interesting from a legal perspective. The court uh, held that, yes, a, search phone, a cell phone may be searched if you're being lawfully arrested, but there have to be some safeguards because otherwise the search will be too intrusive of privacy rights. So the safeguards that they um, held have to apply in for all cell phone searches incident to arrest in future are, first of all, um, the search has to be lawful. Uh, secondly, it has to be done promptly. So that means you can't take the phone away and have it sit in a storage locker, a police locker for a couple of months and then decide, well, now let's look and see what's on the phone. It has to be done promptly uh, in order to preserve um, the notion that it really has to be somehow related to your arrest itself and to police safety and to gathering evidence. The third thing is that um, the nature of the search of the cell phone, the police have to tailor it to the purpose of the search. And generally speaking, what that means is they can only look at recent data, recent call logs, recent emails. Um, this is, uh, as a criminal lawyer, these sort of ideas are, are highly unusual in search law. We don't usually ever talk about um, there having to be recency as a, as a concept when the police are allowed to search your house, for example, they, they, they're never restricted in the search of your home to looking only at new documents, they're allowed to look at everything. But so, so this is showing that the court is departing from traditional law. And then the fourth requirement, which is also very unusual from a criminal law perspective, is in order to search the phone lawfully, your cell phone on arrest, the police must keep a detailed record of what they're doing and what they're seeing on your phone. Um, so all of these four requirements must be met, and the, the, the final two in particular are very unusual in a departure from traditional search law. So those um, four cases are the cases that outside of the border context uh, have shown the big changes in our, our law and the way we treat, um, have to treat searches of electronic devices, whether they're phones or personal computers. Uh, but then when we look at the border context, and uh, usually in law, when you, uh, when you have cases like this, where the Supreme Court of Canada is setting out important principles related to privacy, you would expect that those principles would uh, filter down to the decisions um, from trial, that are given by trial judges where, where at the border these devices are being um, searched. Uh, without any suspicion or grounds. But uh, to date, um, each and every case that has, uh, and since the, the four cases I've, I've talked about, um, since the earlier ones in 2010, each trial decision that applies these principles at the border has, uh, has simply not applied them. Um, every trial judge has said, oh no, you're at the border, none of this applies, we can do, the border service agents can do whatever they like, um, you don't need any suspicion. It's ridiculous. Basically, that's the, the gist of the decisions is a tone of how, what do you mean? It's ridiculous to suggest a cell phone is not like a piece of luggage. Um, uh, and so every challenge to these searches thus far has failed. So just to provide an example and maybe uh, contextualize it for listeners, 
uh, some examples that we've seen at the border in cases that we judicially reviewed where exclusion orders were issued. And we saw, for example, a border official would take someone's cell phone and by in one case going through text and in one case going through the person's Facebook app, discovered that another person had advised or that the person who was crossing the border had openly discussed with someone on their phone how they were going to lie about their purpose of entry regarding, in one case, coming for a marriage and another case, um, purchasing a house. Not necessarily material, but the border wasn't impressed with the open texts about uh, lying. In other cases that I think are maybe more common in going through an employer in a their travelers' emails, they may discover that there's a work opportunity or uh, in one case that we even saw they went into the person's photos and for whatever reason the individual had a photo of a series of pay records and hours worked which translated into some sort of informal way of tracking the pay of someone who was working under the table. So. I guess my question to you to contextualize what you said would be, could a border official walk up to someone who's walking down Robson Street, it's hard to see why they would do this, but say, I want to see your phone and start going through their phone in the middle of the city. And would they be able to do it at the border? Is that, because that's the a huge question that we get asked is, can they actually go through my phone at the border? And then what about when I'm just walking around town? Well, at the border, um, um, the it's an open question because um, if if you look at the trial decisions where it's been objected to, they the they've all um, failed, um, and the searches at the border have been upheld. But I think that that flies completely in the face of uh, the cases from the Supreme Court of Canada. So um, I never like to say to someone make yourself a test case and, and uh, but it's really crying out for the right test case to go up to the Supreme Court of Canada because I fully expect that it uh, there's going to be some sort of change in in the present practice and the present in this whole series of cases we have from the trial courts as far as what happens at the border well we have oh sorry go ahead. no go ahead well just quickly before uh, the test case which I think you're gonna are you gonna mention about the Quebec case but I was going to no. Well, I was going to talk about a couple other cases, but go ahead. But just that quickly on. So there's the border, and then what about in town? In town, and that's where um, it's sort of. If we don't ever have clients in the criminal context um, coming in who's I've never had one who's been searched by someone in town, and I'm sure immigration lawyers see a different the different issues that you deal with. Um, I don't know if the Customs Act has application uh, to a to to somebody with border services undertaking search in town um, or not. Would be I haven't seen it under the Immigration Refugee Protection Act where a CBSA officer Well they have search someone powers. on the street and no, they have search powers home. but they need reasonable grounds. They can get warrants, they can go into people's houses. I mean the, but all of that requires warrants very yeah. similar right. to the ones right. in the yeah. criminal code, right? right? Where you need to show reasonable grounds to believe that there's an offense committed. There are some limitations in terms of inspecting goods that have recently come across. So there are some exceptions, for example, in the holding areas and ports or, uh, you know, if you were going to inspect a, a truck that had just come across the border, 
then there, there may be some flexibility in terms of inspecting goods and things like that. But uh, otherwise, the, the rules are, are very similar to other types of domestic legislation. So if someone's going for, say, an interview at Immigration, Refugee and Citizenship Canada on, say, a spousal sponsorship interview, you're not going to have an officer compel them to give them their phone so they can flip through texts and view the text themselves without a warrant or anything like that. Correct. Because the search would have to be lawful. That's one of the yeah. four factors in that Fearon case. So if there's no, if it's not based on some legislation or or or, or the fact of arrest, um, yeah. then then the search itself wouldn't be lawful. So, but if you're arrested by immigration in land, yes. then yeah. then the, the principles in Fearon would apply. Right. That's right. So, so talking about test cases, there are a couple of test cases going up. Uh, one is uh, quite advanced in. Uh, Ontario, the Saikali case, uh, which deals with uh, a case where the police had suspicions about Mr. Saikali's involvement in drug trafficking, but they hadn't been able to collect enough information to support charges or the types of allegations they were hoping to make in any event. So they contacted, they learned that Mr. Saikali was going to be traveling, so they contacted the uh, immigration or the, the border authorities and asked them, well, next time Mr. Saikali comes across the border, can you have a look at what's in his phone? And they find some incriminating evidence in the phone that then leads to some search warrants and uh, to, to the rest of the evidence against Mr. Saikali. Uh, that's being heard in the Ontario Court of Appeal uh, in October, I believe, of this year. Um, so there's one uh, one area where we're going to see um, at, at least some pronouncements from an appellate court on these issues. Um, our office also has a case proceeding in front of the provincial court, which is one of the, the more traditional type of cases where my client showed up, no suspicion whatsoever. They went through his cell phone, found some naughty cartoons, very naughty cartoons, uh, and uh, or one naughty cartoon, and then searched the, the computer and found some other, uh, some, some other graphic material on there. Um, the, in the course of cross-examination, so we've done the cross-examinations in our case, and in, in fact, one of the, the more, uh, we were just talking about the types, the scope of searches, and it, it reminded me of a case that Steve and I had spoken about recently, um, where in some cases we see border officers even going so far as not only to look at solicitor-client material, but in fact use it against people at the border to say, you have this note here from your lawyer saying you should do X, Y, and Z. That means that your intention is actually not what you say it's going to be. And so I cross I cross examine the, the officers in question in, in my case, and one of the... Uh, um, more eyebrow-raising uh, exchanges. Uh, so do you review material that is solicitor-client privileged? Yes, sir. So if a lawyer or a judge were to cross the border, you would see no limitation in reviewing the materials that were on their laptop or their cell phone. I don't see any limitation. So he didn't see any limitation whatsoever of going just at anything that's on the cell phone, even if it was a judge's phone, which I'm sure impressed the, the judge that he was before. Um, the uh, um, obviously that case hasn't been ruled upon and we're going to be making arguments in the fall but these issues definitely are very live issues especially after Fearon and I think that there, there has been a shift in 
the attitudes with respect to some of the older cases that, that you refer to in your paper. Um, my, my read of Furon is that I think it may take things a little bit further uh, and get us further down that road where at the border, and we have had a lot of case law that talks about searches at the border, the border being not a charter-free zone, but that there's a lower expectation of privacy. But the case law has not said that there's no expectation of privacy. And so to engage in strip searches or cavity searches and those, those types of more intrusive searches still require higher, a higher threshold. And in well, fact, it's also where the, when someone becomes detained and a lot of the existing case law. Correct. Yeah. Well, detention kicks off a lot of rights yeah. uh, in terms of right to counsel and, and the, the, other, uh, the other rights that would kick in at that point. But with respect to the searches themselves, even if they want to do a strip search, they can't just strip search anybody. And so that, you know, it's not a free-for-all uh, on, uh, on being able to search. Okay. Sure. And that, um, what, what, I agree with what you said, Peter, about Firon. And one of the things, those four requirements um, that the court came up with in Firon for searching a cell phone incident to arrest, they're, uh, they're almost like protocols. In some of the earlier cases, defense, the defense was saying to the court, well, give us, there has to be some, something here for the, for the searchers to work with, so we really should have some protocols from the court. And, and up until Firon, they had, they had declined to give protocols. Um, but they did, uh, in Firon, specific to that type of search. And I think um, when it comes to matters of privilege or matters of confidential commercial information that has high, that's highly sensitive, I think that the court will, um, the court, the higher courts will be um, certainly saying something about that and setting out some protocols to protect solicitor-client privilege and protect a commercial interest. I think the case in Ontario that's going up um, is a great one in a lot of ways because it's clear that the police lacked grounds, so they set up uh, the border service. Um, authorities to be basically be agents of the police and accomplish what the police couldn't have done lawfully, which is exactly the sort of uh, facts that I think um, will likely prompt the, the appellate court in Ontario to really look hard at, at this kind of uh, uh, conduct um, by the border service agents. You mentioned in your paper as well how the Americans treat the issue. Um, maybe you could provide a quick overview of the yeah, U.S. perspective. It's, uh, and I had a look... Um, uh, over the last couple of days to see if the law has changed and, and it hasn't. So um, the, uh, there's um, traditionally American law on searches at the border is very similar to Canadian law and, and uh, for searches of the person and of luggage there wasn't any requirement for any grounds or for any suspicion. Um, and then that was challenged in um, uh, a case called Cotterman which um, was out of the state of Arizona. Um, so in Cotterman, it eventually found its way up to the uh, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and uh, they held that at the border, um, to quote from the court's judgment, a person's digital life ought not to be hijacked simply by crossing a border. And um, they also commented that searching a, a cell phone at the border or an electronic device would reveal, it's not like searching a bag because it's a bag of luggage, it's not just what luggage you brought on that trip, but everything you've ever carried anywhere 
it is being searched in an electronic sense. So in light of that, the, the appellate court in the U.S. imposed a requirement that for future searches, um, there has to be reasonable suspicion um, on the part of the searchers that, um, that there's contraband or, or a crime or evidence of a crime contained on the cell phone. So that, and I should emphasize, that's a very low threshold. Um, and and the, the fact that Canadian courts thus far at the trial level have not been willing at the border to go there is very surprising because uh, in most cases, you, you, uh, if you look at the facts of these cases, there was abundant reasonable suspicion uh, in, in the ones that have been litigated. But even if there's not, in our law, um, uh, we always under the charter um, to get evidence actually excluded. It's a whole nother very rigorous process the defense has to go through. So even if the guards, uh, the border service agents didn't have reasonable suspicion, if the court found that was the threshold in Canada, that doesn't mean that it's uh, open season because it would still be an uphill battle for, to, on the defense and to get evidence excluded. But it would at least be a starting point and it would le at least be dictating um, to border service agents what they can and cannot do because the reality is most people whose phones are being searched at the border or computers, they're not committing any crime and they're not being charged with any crime, but their privacy is being routinely and very in intensively um, violated. And, and that's um, objectionable, objectionable in and of itself, in, in my opinion. Um, but in the Cotterman case, so they imposed this standard and that applies now to a number of the Western states, um, uh, Alaska, Arizona, California, Hawaii, Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Oregon, Washington state. So in those states, if you're crossing um, the American border, they cannot search your electronic devices without reasonable suspicion that you're up to no good. In uh, other states, the appellate courts have um, reached the opposite decision and that there is no problem with um, searches at the border without any grounds. And yet in other jurisdictions, there's no decision yet. So the U US Supreme Court is gonna have to weigh in uh, on this, they were asked to do so in Cotterman, um, and they refused to hear the appeal in Cotterman, which is a bit of a surprise, considering it now depends what state you're traveling through, what rights you have, and what powers the searchers have. So that's, um, that I think though that the Cotterman appellate decision is, uh, signals um, the direction I expect our own appellate courts are gonna be going on this, this so issue. And so for people who are traveling, uh, who just don't want, they haven't done anything wrong, but they don't want their privacy reached, could they be arrested or detained or their phone seized if, say, they refuse to provide a password or the phone is out of batteries or they've even, say, deleted the email apps from their phone just because they don't want an officer going through their emails? Well, that's a, that's a very thorny issue. Um, there was one case out of Nova Scotia recently where charges were laid because of a refusal to um, provide that, uh, uh, the password. Um, I don't know the answer, and that case didn't proceed to trial. Um, the, uh, the accused entered a guilty plea, um, somewhat surprisingly in that case. I think that um, it's a complete unknown um, as to how that's going to be treated by the courts. But I think that there's, uh, on, on the issue of the requirement to give passwords, I think it's an issue in general that hasn't been dealt with by the courts. Yeah. And because passwords are very different from, and there's two ways of looking at a password uh, with respect to conscripted evidence. And so when you talk about, is it more like forcing someone to give up uh, to make a statement 
or is it more akin to forcing somebody to give you to taking a key out of their pocket? Because the the one issue with respect to the incriminating evidence, and there's two concerns with incriminating evidence. One is the coercion in obtaining the incriminating evidence itself, in, in, in obtaining a confession, for example. But the other concern with confessions is that if you torture somebody, they'll say anything. That issue doesn't arise with a password. It either is the password or it isn't. So it's incriminating, but you uh, there's a whole side of the um, issues around confessions that doesn't arise in the context of compelling uh, passwords to be given up. And so we've seen courts in the United States uh, and in Canada to a certain extent, there's, there's been a couple of decisions, but nothing, nothing very clear in terms of where the law is at in Canada. But in the States where you've seen uh, courts going both ways with respect to forcing people to give up passwords to devices, uh, even in the domestic context. So when we talk about the border context, it's even less clear. Um, because there, compelled statements are the, the, there's a whole framework for compelling statements at the border anyways. Uh, so the, the issue gets that much more complicated um, where... Although giving a phone without giving the password is pretty meaningless at the border, considering all phones have passport, or passwords. Oh, yeah. arguably it is. Yeah. And so... Um, I, I think one of the so sorry I don't know if you have any comments on that. Or... No, I, I agree. It's uh, it's going to be interesting to see what the courts do with that issue. Um, I think one of the issues for me that uh, I think is with respect to the the search of digital devices that I find very problematic is this idea in Canada that the basis for the search is that the cell phone is a good now. The, the rationale for searching goods is that you are inspecting the goods themselves. Now, the digital information either is a good or it's not. If digital information is a good, why is it a good when it's on an electronic device coming across the border and not a good when it's coming across the airwaves or coming across uh, the internet? And if it is a good, then is it a free-for-all for searching all internet communications coming across the border? And because those are all goods subject to inspection. And so either electronic information, and most of the searches for cell phones, when you talk about the Customs Act justifications for searches, they're looking for child pornography 99% of the time. That's what they're looking for is illegal content. They're looking for goods. But why would you search... Why would it be justified to search a cell phone for child pornography coming across the border and not justified to search the internet, which is where 99% of the child pornography imported into Canada is coming from, right? So you're looking at it from a policy perspective, if you want to stop child pornography from coming into Canada, you have a fire hose of child pornography coming across the internet and this trickle of child pornography coming across on cell phones it seems like a very odd policy decision. And if you're going to be treating digital information as goods, I think there's a serious problem from a policy perspective in terms of trying to defend these sections the way they're currently being applied to digital information. 
So we'll see where the courts go with that. But I don't know if you have any. Um, no, I, I agree, Peter, and it's it, it it's just part of the larger um, failure on the part of trial judges in Canada to sort of grapple with the nature. I, I sometimes wonder when I read these decisions whether they even have computers or cell phones, because they just don't seem to to be really uh, making so far and not made much of an effort to grapple with these sort of underlying fundamental uh, issues and problems with treating computers and cell phones in this way, like goods. It's good news for you, Steve. It means we need to get more millennials on the Supreme Court of Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, I mean, a lot of it will be interesting to see what's on the phone on the test case that they do run. Like, is it a phone that just an old flip phone where there is no email? Is there email or is there an app like Mint where you can see all the financial accounts and login details of somebody who's crossing the border if you can get into that app? Um, I'm not sure, I mean, they treat, the border is always treated in immigration as well, just differently. I'm not sure the argument of if we're not, will, if we're not willing to accept the intrusion at the, in general, why do we accept it at the border? Um, just because well, it's almost an analogous to an argument of we. Oh, why would we? You know, if the United States is going to go to war in that country, shouldn't it go to all wars in every country, where you can still judge the individual action at the border at the uh, the specific area? I think you're misunderstanding my argument. I'm not saying that you search the internet in general. I'm saying you search the internet at the border. All wires coming across the border. Okay, I know I miss. Just like you do with any good. So it's you know if I if I ship a container. Or if I bring a container in the back of my car, they're both subject to search in the same way. So it does, I don't avoid a search by couriering something or pure layering something to myself. I still, that those goods are still subject to search. So if digital information is a good, then they are goods coming across the border when you send me an email from Seattle or from Toronto and it goes through Seattle which is quite common in terms of the functioning of the internet. But for law enforcement purposes, there's something beautifully simple about here's a person standing here and here's the phone and there's child pornography on the phone. Or, uh, as far as enforcement goes, you arrest them and off they go. Uh, whereas if you're, if, and I think it just boils down to that, it's just easy. It's well, easy. I think the test case they uh, talked about highlights that were something they couldn't do inside Canada. They yeah. can achieve at the yeah. border. Why should that be? especially in the customs case. In the immigration world where there, which was much more about controlling entry to Canada of persons, uh, there's a lot of areas in the Immigration Refugee Protection Act where you know, certain people who are entering Canada, if they're found to have worked without authorization, or if they're, just the procedural safeguards at the border are a lot less, should they be I'm not sure in all cases, but in this case of the, just the depth to which officers can go into phones, almost on complete phishing expeditions, and eventually it'll probably get to the point where they can quickly plug in the phone and just download everything um, that's on the phone, including all saved emails. How far should the law go to restrict officers from determining whether somebody is entering Canada to work or whatnot? Well, and I think those are those are definitely uh, interesting. But although, with respect to the Sakali case, um, the criminal law does have 
a long, proud tradition of contrived traffic stops uh, to collect <laughs> evidence. Uh, following, you follow anybody around long enough, they're eventually going to break some technical rule of the of the road, which will allow you to pull them over and verify their identity and uh, do a number of other things that you otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And the courts have generally been okay with that. And it's um, the same with how broad the Immigration Act is. Look at uh, Donald Trump's wife, who may or may not be inadmissible to the U.S. for some... Like, if you can find all... The way work is so broadly defined, the way uh, the subjectivity of what someone's intention is to enter Canada on temporary permanent, you can almost always find something. You can't uh, prohibit me from talking about Donald Trump and then provoke <laughs> <laughs> I think you prohibited yourself after our first episode. <laughs> Well, when you think so, about somebody, uh, high-profile people, I mean, it must be, I don't know what they do. I wouldn't, if I were some public figure, I don't think I'd want to be taking my cell phone across the border. Um, because what's to stop somebody, Don, I mean, border service, Donald Trump is there. <laughs> Are they not going to go through his phone and find things that are embarrassing or, you know, personal and private? It'd be a big temptation for, for public figures. Yeah. Um, all right, so uh, so I think we'll move on to the to our next topic. Is there anything else that we needed that we didn't cover on that uh, last last thoughts last so. words? No. All right, so um, the the second topic we want to talk about. Uh, you recently had a uh, rather or at least surprising from the observer's perspective. Uh, and uh, those of us who have been observing national security um, prosecutions, uh, it was quite a surprise to, to many of us in the legal community as well. Um, in the, the Nuttall case, uh, do, you, do you want to give just a quick overview of what the Nuttall case was? Uh, sure. And, uh, so and my, my client, um, John Nuttall, and his wife, Amanda Carodi, uh, were charged with terrorism offenses. And we've just concluded um, a, a hearing. They were found guilty by a jury, and we've concluded a hearing um, in which we were arguing entrapment. And, and the trial judge agreed they were entrapped and set aside, um, or declined to enter the findings of guilt, which means that the criminal charges um, have ended unsuccessfully for the state. So the, the, the short version is that my client and his wife were two. Um, people who were living very marginalized lives of poverty. Um, they had substance abuse difficulties. They were recent converts to Islam. And they came on the radar, radar first of CSIS, and then um, through CSIS to the RCMP uh, as potential terrorists. Um, the RCMP under, uh, undertook to uh, do um, uh, surveillance of them and to review their phone records and to uh, undertake their own investigations, uh, all of which um, yielded nothing as far as any uh, information suggesting they might be planning a terrorist act. So they then uh, took, it, went, took it a step further and chose to introduce uh, to my clients and his wife a, an undercover operation that essentially involved members of the RCMP posing uh, initially as just conservative uh, um, Muslims, but ultimately as, as a terrorist group. And over a core period of months, they befriended uh, my client and his wife and um, took them to restaurants, took them on some trips, uh, and we argued, uh, pressured them and induced them 
until they ultimately agreed to uh, commit uh, a pretend terrorist act, uh, pretend in the sense that the RCMP had control of it, of all of its details, and um, it involved the placement of uh, a, a non-functional um, bomb at the British Columbia Legislature. The court found that the that this was wrong in a number of respects. First of all, the RCMP didn't have any uh, suspicion when they, at the at the pertinent times, that my client and his wife were already engaged in terrorist activity. Because the more time they spent with my client, the court found, the more it should have become abundantly clear that even though um, Mr. Nuttall and his wife, uh, in particular Mr. Nuttall. Uh, were full of a lot of big talk about grievances against the West and um, pro-jihadist sympathies. It was just that talk and that there was no um, intention and there was no steps being taken to to actually commit any, any crimes. Aside from that, uh, the fact they didn't have any suspicion, because our law of entrapment dictates that unless you have that suspicion someone's already engaged in a similar crime, then the police are not allowed to uh, do what they did here. But aside from that, we found they also, the court found that they were also entrapped. There's a separate way that they were entrapped, which is that the, the strategies and the manipulations of the police, in fact, induced the commission of the offense. Uh, so, um, and that is something our law does not allow uh, for police to induce a crime. It's uh, very different from uh, police infiltrating an ongoing plot to commit a crime. That, of course, they're allowed to do. But in this case, they manufactured the crime itself, and most of its essential um, elements were, were, were police planned and police undertaken, and our clients played, the court found, a very small part, and they did so because of an atmosphere in large part of fear, um, because uh, we had wiretaps, so we knew what they were saying in private, and in their private conversations, my client and his wife expressed fear that if they didn't go along with this, they would be killed by the the RCMP officers who were masquerading as um, jihadist terrorists. So that's, um, we were in court, um, we started the trial in January of 2015 and we concluded um, with that final decision in July of this year. So what now, I understand he was rearrested after he was released, so the couple was rearrested. Yes, so I, we had the terrible experience after three years, being detained for three years, of being at the courthouse with this uh, decision being handed down, and then um, took a couple of hours to organize next steps and transportation, and my client left with his mother and uh, some friends and his wife for a meal at a local restaurant, and then when they left the restaurant, they were arrested by the police. Um, and the uh, police have now brought uh, to the Crown, the Crown has brought forward an application for what's known as a peace bond, and they are seeking um, to have terms in, imposed. My client's now out on bail, um, but we have a hearing which has just been scheduled to start, unfortunately not until January, um, where they will be, um, the Crown will be seeking to have terms imposed on my client and his wife uh, restricting their freedom. Um, because of what they say is, is that there exists a, a fear that they may commit a terrorist crime. They're relying in large part on the same evidence that this trial judge has already reviewed over, over a period of time, snippets of it. Um, so here's, a, for example, they'll, the Crown is seeking to put in small, piece, small parts of the wiretap out of context. Um, and we say that, that, that they're basically trying to re, 
retry the case that's already been decided, and the law doesn't doesn't allow that. So we're going to be starting in January with an argument that um, they can't seek to uh, have another judge look at the same facts or a subset of those same facts and come to a different conclusion. Mm. Otherwise, there will be no end to all of this. So we'll see what the court. Um, so we're in front of a new judge at a different courthouse, um, trying that. And, and are these the, the? Is it under the old provisions uh, that, that existed prior to C fifty one, or are they using the new C fifty one? The new, the new provisions. So the new provisions. Yes. Okay. And yes. is it? Uh, and, and would this be? How many cases have they done so far under these provisions? Do you know, like um, more or less, if this? There, there are, I believe, uh, a few um, cases. It, it, it uh, under the new provisions, it's um, this is not a traditional peace bond. It's a terrorism peace bond. It has a, uh, a a low threshold, a controversial threshold, because of the word "may." It's a fear that someone may commit. Um, an offense, as opposed to grounds to believe they they will commit an offense, so it's uh, it's going to um, it, probably be the first full fledged lengthy trial under under these new provisions, I believe. Okay. Um, and uh, do you know if the if the case the, the the case itself is going to appeal, or is it? I don't know why the yes. appeal. Yes, uh, uh, appeal was filed uh, immediately. Um, the day by that the we got, by the crown, the day that we got or received our decision on entrapment. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, I was going to say, in terms of uh, these, this type of entrapment. I mean, the um, what does this say in general about our national security investigations? I know that this has been a problem in the state, or at least has been identified as a problem. I believe the ACLU did a res- uh, uh, a report on the practices in the United States and the number of prosecutions that had actually arisen out of very similar, or at least on their face, circumstances that sound very similar to what you're describing uh, your clients were in, where many of the prosecutions under the, the national security and terrorism provisions in the United States had been, not to say manufactured, but they uh, these type of sting operations where you have vulnerable individuals who've, uh, um, or, or otherwise compromised individuals who uh, are induced or, or otherwise encouraged to commit offenses and then prosecuted. Yeah, it's, a, it's, um, it's sadly an extremely pre- prevalent model of law enforcement in south of the border. I've, I've read uh, that as many as 90 Eight percent of all terrorism prosecutions in the U.S. are, and I don't hesitate to use the word manufactured because I think that's exactly what they are. Uh, it's slightly different down there. They don't tend to use actual um, members of police forces masquerading as terrorists. They have, they have agents, um, so civilians often very shady, rogue characters themselves, who um, who have uh, been sent out to infiltrate. Um, even mosques uh, for some of these cases. Um, and there has been some criticism in the US of this, but not not surprisingly little, um, other than the ACLU and some other organizations that, some Muslim organizations that um, have, um, have criticized this approach. By and large, I think the American public is fine with this. Um, our case was the first case in Canada where uh, this has been tried in Canada. American law and entrapment is very dramatically different from Canadian entrapment law. In America, 
if somebody has a predisposition, then in law it is next to impossible to find that they have been entrapped. So that means that uh, people wandering the streets with crazy ideas, it's open season as far as this type of state. And I'm generalizing there, but that's sort of um, the, the tendency in American law. In Canadian law, uh, very, very different. We're not, uh, our law does not allow that type of assessment to be made. The focus in entrapment is on the conduct of the police in the state, and is it conduct that we're willing to live with as Canadians? Um, and that's what the judge looked at in our case, was the conduct of the police, and, and uh, she found that it crossed the line dramatically. Um, so I think that is the death knell for this type of sting operation in this country. Um, it, uh, uh, given our unusual facts, um, given that our clients were um, uh, essentially doing whatever they could to try to not carry this plot forward in so many different ways, they were trying to get out of it, and they were pressured and pressured and pressured and pressured by the police. So it was these are extraordinarily egregious um, facts in our case that led to this very uh, unusual finding to have entrapment in any kind of major prosecution, let alone a terrorism prosecution. Is, is, it's, well, it's the first, um, the first in North America where it's been found, but uh, I think that's, that's a wonderful signal about our, our law and, um, and, and what we're prepared to um, have the state engage in in our country. That's so when I was uh, speaking with uh, some people earlier this week and I mentioned that you would be on the podcast, there were two questions that I was asked and one kind of relates to what you just said, which was, um, somebody wanted to know, was there ever an explanation or rationale given by the police as to why they didn't intervene earlier to say more in a rehabilitative sense? Like we've identified that you may, you know, we're, we're actually undercover, we know you may, we, you're, you're showing these tendencies, maybe here's a mental health avenue that you can take or something like that. We had, um, we had a lot of police officers testify who were involved in this operation and, and uh, uh, many of them uh, were, it was very clear from the notes they kept at the time and the documents they created at the time that this was happening, they, they had those kind of views and were opposed to this going forward and believed that it was uh, risking being found to be entrapment and believed that uh, the RCMP were creating and inflaming um, vulnerable individuals uh, when really what should be happening was monitoring and perhaps an overt in, um, open um, session with the police in uniform showing up and having a chat with them or mental health assessment, etc. So. Uh, there was a lot of talk about that, and why that talk didn't uh, filter uh, into uh, alternative options, it, it, it's, a, it's a tough call, except that it was clear that at least you know, um, one of the officers who had those views was um, given the boot and marginalized, and uh, I don't mean from the RCP, but from the team, his, his authority was removed from him by the lead investigator. Um, another officer who, uh, who had some um, concerns of that sort, he also had his authority removed from him a week before the final arrests. And also, uh, very significantly, Ottawa headquarters of the RCB were not being told what was actually happening on the ground in this operation, which I found absolutely extraordinary that the documents being given to headquarters 
didn't disclose, for example, that the police were pretending to be terrorists. So they were approving an operation without knowing what was going on. And then the other question that I got asked, you can imagine at the table, one person gives that side, the other chimes in with a different question. And it's probably a question you get often as a criminal defense lawyer, which is, do you ever feel scared representing people who are, uh, say, accused of wanting to blow up buildings? <laughs> I have no, certainly never felt uh, at all scared with Mr. Nuttall. He's a lovely client. Uh, he's been uh, very easy to deal with, um, and very pleasant to deal with, very appreciative of the legal work done for him. Um, he's uh, he's um, obviously has his own personal troubles, but I think you know I think most criminal lawyers uh, we rarely have with any case any concerns about our clients. I think that's probably true of most. Cases most clients. Um, Reading about Mr. Nuttall, I would say that over the years, seeing some of the clients that uh, Marilyn and other people have represented, he is definitely very low on the totem pole in terms of uh, the possibility to induce fear. No, not a scary guy. Yeah. Anyway, we don't need to talk about that. There are are other. but that would be my my read of Mr. Nuttall. He, as he, he didn't seem to be. He didn't seem to be the person who. who no, and the judge the found, as a judge commented, he's very childlike um, in many ways and um, very simple in many ways. Um, he's a, he loves to talk, so you know we lawyers like to talk, so we got along very well. I assumed as much. I just thought I'd pass on the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it became quite evident that Mr. Nuttall is not going to be able to build a bomb anytime soon. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> Was uh, it the case? I don't remember from when the news first broke that they actually had a bomb on the BC ferry, and that the RCMP had uh, on board a BC ferry. With they the bomb. Are, yeah, our clients did not. The undercover police officers um, put the bomb uh, together in the Lower Mainland, and then the evidence was that yes, it was transported. It was inert. It had it had a small amount of actual explosives that they put in the bomb. The police did. Um, because they wanted to ensure the maximum legal uh, culpability for my client. I thought, frankly thought that was a bit bizarre. Um, uh, but there was some actual C4 explosive in the bomb, but it couldn't function as a bomb. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it <laughs> There was actual C4 in there. Yes. That's um, yes. interesting. I hadn't... Uh, yes. I, I, had, I, I, I hadn't... Uh, I, I knew that it was being represented as C4, and I knew that they... Obviously had access to C four being the RCMP, but I um, oh, it's an interesting uh, yeah. twist on the. Uh, mm-hmm. um, all right. Well, thank you, thank you very much. You're uh, very welcome. And that's uh, that's definitely been a very interesting conversation. I think we'll um, we're going to move on and talk about some other uh, some other cases. Do you yeah, want to start with some short updates? Do some um, short updates. Yeah, mine uh, was the uh, decision released two days ago. Jiang, the Canada Minister of Citizenship and Immigration. And I've talked about this with a few lawyers now in this decision, and they all agree that it's probably an, it's an accurate reading of the law, but it's an example of kind of the idiosyncrasies of immigration law. And in this case, a visitor to Canada had applied to extend her status, and it was approved. And during that time of the extension, she never left Canada, and she entered into a short-term course immigration law, the Immigration Refugee 
Protection Act provides that a visitor can enter into a short-term course if they complete the course by the time granted to enter Canada during their entry to Canada. And both the officer and the course found that this meant that the person has had to have completed her course during the initial period of her uh, visitor visa entry to Canada and not any extensions. So she was found to have studied without authorization. What, so that's just something to note for anybody considering taking a short course. What's also interesting to note about the case is that uh, Justice Bell specifically found that the Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada website basically says the complete opposite and doesn't mention this restriction on extensions. Um, so it's a good example and Justice Bell notes that immigration officers don't implement the Immigration Refugees Protection or CIC website, they implement the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. And I'll just note that even though I'm sure the government was made aware of this inaccuracy on their website several months prior to the decision being released, the text remains the same on their website. So hopefully they change it soon before more people are caught by this. That seems to me that was a there was at least an officially induced error there that uh, um, it's it's actually a, a somewhat bizarre uh, application of the law in, in the sense that I, I don't think any any immigration lawyers or at least it, it wasn't an interpretation that I had heard floating around as on the radar um, because it in fact doesn't make any sense is that no. if you can study if studying for less than six months is not studying but what this means is that when you're on deemed status, I mean, you can't even take a pottery class. It's, it's a bizarre situation that it's the, the deemed status actually is this. God help you if you entered Canada and they went through your phone and found that you'd taken that pottery class. But not only that, but what's unclear to me is whether you can study during an extension. So if you if you extend your status, so this was in a deemed status case. Oh, no, I read it as but, they can't because it was granted. Um, I read it as you can't during an extension either, unless you leave Canada and re-enter. Right, but it, it's it, it seems like a problematic. Uh, I mean, it, it it seems to be against what was intended by the regulations in terms of the the length of time authorized upon entry is a flexible amount of time depending on the status, as opposed to there being a deadline to this period of time. It's it's a very odd interpretation of the section, which which is gonna which has some very odd implications for people who uh, extend their status uh, while they're here, um, versus the people who go down to the border. And what it means is that you're gonna have more and more people flagpoling yeah. to uh, to address this problem. Because if you want to take a pottery class, you're better off flagpoling than doing an extension. And I don't even know what you like if you start your course. And then you run out of time and you need the flagpole can you i don't think that the i mean what's interesting to me is that the interpretation cannot be what they intended yet instead of simply maybe they agree okay the officer's decision was reasonable based on the way the reg is written um i would i'm surprised i would have preferred if they had you know i don't i understand defending the officer's decision but you'd think they could have said first of all sorry that the website's wrong okay, you studied without authorization the way the regs are currently written. We're going to change the regs. Here's a temporary resident permit in the meantime. 
Because I can't imagine that this is what they intended. Well, obviously not, because that's what CIC, whoever yeah. was drafting the CIC <laughs> website was like, well, that's just a stupid interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, so the um, one of the sorry, is that uh, well, yeah, no, just a really really short one on uh, labor market impact assessments. Those are the opinions that companies, or the assessments now that companies have to obtain before they employ a foreign worker in the temporary foreign worker program. One of the exemptions to having to recruit domestically first is if you're the owner and operator of a business. Until a couple weeks ago. Um, to satisfy this recruitment exemption, you just had to show that you were the owner of a business and that your uh, work in Canada was integral to the operation of the business and would result in the creation or maintenance of jobs. I think what happened was some very clever employers started offering their employees one or two shares and started arguing that that made them owners of the business or they got shares as part of their compensation package. And there were a lot of applications going in requesting these exemption on the basis that technically they were owners. So there was a quiet change that, of course, is retroactive on the uh, ESDC website, which now says that they have to be a majority shareholder. They have to continue to show the job growth and uh, that they are integral to the business and that they cannot be fireable within the business. So I'm not sure how one necessarily shows that, but that is one of the new requirements to show that the person who is getting the exemption cannot be dismissed by the company. So uh, in terms of my updates, I've got uh, the the Federal Court of Appeal handed down its decision in Gutierrez. Uh, Gutierrez was a case that dealt with the issue of uh, interviewing refugee claimants in the period of time between when they initiate their claim and the claim is referred to the Immigration Refugee Board and the hearing itself. And so there were two questions that came up uh, in the Gutierrez case. Uh, the first was whether or not there was an obligation to show up to answer questions. Uh, and this was a, a, a live issue and, and is, is somewhat problematic because in the, the refugee context, in particular in the Western region where we have a 45% intervention rate by the minister, so the minister intervenes in 45% of refugee hearings, leading up to the hearing, they would often compel or purport to compel the uh, refugee claimant to come in for further interviews, which would then be used against them in the refugee hearing. So the Federal Court of Appeal said that's fine. Uh, they do have that obligation to show up, and yes, they can continue to do that. So on, on that level, it was not, uh, I mean, it confirmed the decision from the lower court uh, on, that, uh, on that issue, uh, but you are compelled to attend the interview. However, on the second point, which was the point that the minister was actually, uh, or, or the main issue, I, I think, that the minister was fighting this on, because this was a minister's appeal, um, was that the board had thrown out some of the statements because the minister had interviewed without uh, allowing the person to have their, uh, their counsel, to give their counsel an opportunity to attend the interview. And so convening an interview without giving counsel the opportunity to attend is a problem and is a breach of Section 167 of, uh, um, uh, of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act. So that question was answered in the positive. Both questions were answered in the positive. Uh, the, the minister's appeal was dismissed. 
Um, and uh, so the short of it is that refugee claimants do have an obligation to show up for the interviews, but they uh, the minister needs to give the opportunity for counsel to show up. Now, uh, what does that counsel showing up right entail? Can counsel just walk into the room and say, this interview is over, we're out of here? No, there's an obligation. There's a 60, an, uh, an obligation under Section 16 of the Act to answer the questions truthfully. So you have to sit in on the interview and answer the questions just like you would in any other uh, immigration interview. The difference is, is that you do have uh, a right to have counsel present, which you don't uh, in, for example, a border interview. So in other words, when, uh, or at least, um, let's say it's a, it's a, a questionable, uh, there's, not a, there's not an inherent right to counsel. And Degani from the Supreme Court of Canada is quite clear on the issue that there's not a right to counsel at the border until there's a detention. What's unclear is whether or not, if counsel is there, whether the person, you don't have a right to counsel, but can they prevent you from talking to counsel or can they prevent counsel from participating in the interviews is something that hasn't been clarified by the court. What about consultation with counsel during the course of the interview? Well, in, in the, with respect to A16 interviews and these interviews, yes, you could, you could consult with counsel. Counsel can, uh, can be present for the interview um, once there's been the referral to the Immigration Refugee Board. Um, the the uh, immigration officers, in my experience, take the position that in other interviews where there are A60, uh, obligations under Section 16 of the Act, um, that they allow counsel to uh, be present as a courtesy. Yeah, so you have I to be very careful. There's a paragraph in the decision that specifically also limits it to the refugee context after the claim has been referred. Correct. And so it's after the claim has been referred and that this is before the Immigration Refugee Board. And so it's a kind of ongoing litigation. I mean, it's, it's almost like a form of, they, they, they treat it like a form of discovery or what you would see in the civil context, like discovery. So it'd be like discovering your client without you being there. Is, is what this looks like in practice. Now, what would the consequence to the claimant be if all the claimant said during that interview was, I don't want to talk about this now, I'll answer this at the hearing? Well, what would the practical consequence be? A breach of Section 16 of the Act, um, which in theory could lead to criminal charges never has. In theory, it's a breach of the, the act that could lead to a charge under Section 124. In practice, the way it's normally dealt with, a breach of A16 will lead to an inadmissibility more realistically to some type of negative inference. Um, but in practice, uh, the inadmissibility is irrelevant to a refugee claimant. In other words, it wouldn't actually render a refugee claimant inadmissible in the way that it would a normal client. Yeah. So, um, so an interesting decision. I think it, it clarifies some things with respect in the refugee context. Uh, I'd be very surprised to see this taken up any further. Um, the other, uh, the other case that I had is the uh, the Torre decision, which was a decision from the Federal Court of Appeal from uh, I guess it had been last year. Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada just denied leave on it. It's, uh, it was a situation where uh, there had been a significant delay between the time when uh, the minister became aware of Mr. Torrey's inadmissibility and actually brought an admissibility hearing. And they sought, a char they sought charter relief, which I, I found somewhat uh, a, a surprising 
or an interesting approach, but they had sought charter relief at the uh, at the hearing for the delay. Um, in other words, they had gone after the the delay of bringing the initial allegations. Um, it it does. Uh, I mean, the the federal court of appeal decision does deal with the issue of delay before the board um, in a somewhat broader sense. Um, I think that it may create some challenges with respect to arguing delay before the board. Uh, but when you read the decision more closely, there's there's still a, some scope for the types of arguments that have been made in other cases with respect to delay and the unfairness that results from that. So there still is some scope for arguing delay before the board. Charter arguments before the board have always been a challenge, and, and especially with the more recent decisions like B10, where it's, it's pretty clear that the charter is not engaged in a lot of these situations. Um, looking at the actual arguments that were made in front of the Supreme Court of Canada, um, it's, they were focused quite significantly on the charter and a 24-1 remedy, uh, which ultimately uh, may not have been, uh, was, a, was an approach that wasn't endorsed by the Federal Court of Appeal, and given recent decisions from the Supreme Court of Canada, it's perhaps not surprising that leave wasn't granted. And just to be clear, when we're talking, when Peter's talking about delay, we're not he, we're not referring to something where, say, a crime was committed and only came to the attention of authorities many many years later. In this case, um, it's a situation where a criminal conviction in Canada will generally lead, for the purpose of this, to, will generally lead to deportation proceedings commencing against permanent residents for serious crimes, anyway. And in here, I think the conviction was in the late 90s, which meant the government was aware of it. And then I don't, I, I don't remember when the conviction was, but there's a couple decades almost of a delay where the deportation proceedings start somewhat later. So I'm not sure like, uh, let's go back to the criminal context. In the criminal context, let's say somebody does have, they're pulled over for a DUI and the police wait 20 years to charge, would that ever happen? Like, would there be any consequence? Like, would it, a, a delay? Pre-charge delay doesn't usually come into play. No, it doesn't. In assessing. Unless you, you have to argue it in, in the criminal context for pre-charge delay, you have to argue it as an abusive process, but there's, yeah. no, there's no direct charter right. So normal delay, so that with the recent decision from the Supreme Court of Canada in Jordan, for example, which has clarified the law on the, the delay post-charge. So yeah. once you've been charged, you have a right to a trial within a reasonable time. And Jordan has recently clarified, you know, these deadlines of 18 months and et cetera for, for different types of proceedings. But the, uh, the pre-charge delay, there is no direct constitutional right. And so you have to argue it as an abusive process under, as a general pro proposition under Section Which is similar to what you'd have to do in the immigration context with abusive process. Correct. And so a lot of it will have to do with prejudice, the reasons for the delay, bad faith, all of those factors will come into what the courts are going to see as an exceptional remedy. Um, and that's very similar to the way the board deals with it as well, where you, you really need to show that this is outright abusive. Um, or arguably, you can bring it in on, I mean, in theory, there is the Blanco approach. So the, the Supreme Court of Canada in Blanco talks about the possibility of psychological impact of the delay being a Section 7 breach. 
but then denies that relief in Blanco and we haven't actually seen it applied. And so we haven't seen a positive Blanco case, at least not in the immigration context that I'm aware of, where you've actually seen Blanco applied to say this this delay or this affected me so profoundly psychologically that it was a breach of my integrity as a person. But they do leave that door open in Blanco as a possibility. Right. So those those are I think those are the uh, um, the ones that we had for today. So yeah, thank you very much thanks. for coming on. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah, it was, uh, okay. This has been the Borderlines podcast. Thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you very much to uh, Marilyn Sanford for joining us today, and also to Robin Bajer and Funk in the Trunk for our music. If you're looking for to get in touch with us, you can find us at borderlines.ca, B-O-R-D-E-R-L-I-N-E-S dot C-A. You can also find us on Twitter at borderlines underscore C-A.